Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enning Pratt Free Library, and welcome. And as you can see, we are so delighted to have a special edition of our Writers Live series. As many of you know, election fever is heating up in Maryland and around the country, so we are very honored and pleased to have tonight someone who kind of knows the ins and outs of political campaigns, President Obama's campaign manager, David Plouffe. I think we know how some people voted. <laughs> and I know that you must be very anxious to ask him about the, not only the 2008 presidential campaign, but also the upcoming midterm elections and different movements to and fro. To introduce our special guest is a true friend of the Pratt Library. He is the senior news analyst for Baltimore's NPR affiliate WYPR, and many of you know him and read his columns for the Baltimore Sun, and he's also an author of several books, including William Donner Schaefer, A Political Biography, and Here Lies Jim Crow, Civil Rights in Maryland. So please welcome to the Pratt Library again, C. Fraser Smith. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, and um, I'm just thinking that what you all represent is what the Democratic Party needs this year, a big turnout. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure David Pluff uh, appreciates you being here as well. Uh, I remember when I, when I really realized what was going on, I suppose it was belated, but when uh, Obama came to uh, Baltimore on a Tuesday, I think, at noon, and, and uh, what a turnout there was there. Uh, and, and there was a young man from, um, from um, Montgomery County that played the violin, and uh, the candidate didn't come, and he played something else, and then did he know anything else, and he kept playing, and finally, <laughs> finally the candidate got here. Uh, you know, everybody's not on campaign time, so you know you, you don't really quite understand exactly what's going on, but everybody I'm sure was happy that they came and, and stayed there and, and uh, I, I'm sure this happened over and over, but at, at one point somebody shouted from the from the bleachers of the of the Civic Auditorium, uh, I, I love you, Barack and he and he just, you know, turned around and said, I love you back and <laughs> I, I mean you, you just I mean the electricity was really incredible. I mean, and um, that's that's why it happened, of course. Um, so it, it's a it's a real pleasure to be able to introduce some someone who who really uh, was in the boiler room, as they say, when history was made. I mean, a, a lots of a lot of times we don't know uh, people like David Pluff and uh, uh, and Mr. Axelrod. You know, you don't you don't know the engineers in the boiler room, but. but this is a, a media age, and so everybody becomes a celebrity. And uh, we get we get good books about how all of this happened, and it's a, it's really an appropriate day because this is the day that a lot of the health care legislation goes into effect. 
I'm sure that I'm totally objective when I say this, but <laughs> how in the world could people want to repeal the things that are happening just today? This is just the beginning. I get to say that now because I'm not a reporter anymore. I'm, I deal in opinion. And of course, that was an opinion. Um, but let me, let me just say that uh, David Pluff, as they say, has walked the walk, or maybe it's knock the knock. He uh, started out, or at least uh, his resume includes door knocking in Delaware, the home of, a, I believe her name is Christine O'Donnell. But that's, that's what we call a sort of a foreshadowing of, uh, of an issue that I hope that our speaker will address. Um, in Iowa, where someone named Sarah is apparently going to speak soon. Um, but, you know, we see here, in, and we have seen here in, in Maryland and in Baltimore recently, that risk takers and people who are willing to put themselves on the line can make progress for themselves and for us. Um, Greg Bernstein uh, uh, beat the odds and became the new state's attorney. And a young man named Bill Ferguson, who's only, only been on this earth as long as the person he defeated was in office. <laughs> but it can happen. Um, I, at some point, I, I want to say that uh, one of the things I really like about this book is the title. First of all, of course, as we know, it's an echo of the book that uh, Barack Obama wrote, the second of his, of his books, which I haven't read, but I certainly did love the first one. Um, but it, so that's, that's what can happen. And, and um, the, the man that you're going to hear from now is going to tell you a little bit about how it happened and his confidence that that's not the end of it, that... Uh, you know, that there are more chapters to be written here. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, I give you David Plouffe. Well, thank you, uh, C. Frazier, and it's uh, wonderful to be here at this uh, wonderful institution and library. Um, I want to thank you for that uh, great ovation you gave me. It uh, makes me think that there's probably not too many of Sarah Palin's Mama Grizzlies here tonight. <laughs> so I'm doubly happy to be with you. Um, I'm gonna, the book I wrote was about the 2008 campaign and uh, it wasn't something that I was planning to write. Uh, and it really wasn't until really election night and a couple days after it, I mean, Sometimes people don't believe this. We didn't really focus on the historical aspect about this or what it might mean in this country and around the world. And so, it, you know, humbly it became clear to us that, um, you know, this election was something, whether you supported them or not, however the next eight years turned out, um, this was a very important moment. And, uh, you know, there were going to be a lot of books written. Some have. I'm sure some of them have been good. I haven't read them. But we thought it was important to capture what happened through our eyes. And I say we because obviously I don't write this without the authority of um, a certain individual. And, um, and so that's what I try to do in this book. Uh, now the paperback, I, I had to write a chapter about kind of what's happened since the election and the politics of the moment. Um, that was fun to write. I could just vent about a lot of things going on. Uh, but I'm going to talk uh, briefly about um, the core of the book and then um, 
move on to, I'm sure, most of your questions. Some may be about that, um, because a lot of you followed it, participated in it, but also what's going on today and what may happen in the future in our politics. You know, first of all, obviously, Maryland did play a very important role uh, in the president's election. Um, you know, we came into the so-called Potomac primary here in Virginia, D.C., um, having just done better on the Super Tuesday event around the country than we thought, but we were still in a dead heat race. And it was really what happened here that catapulted us uh, into what we believed was a position that would not be eroded. So what you guys did here for Barack Obama, what Virginia did, and what the District of Columbia did, played a really, really important role in the tail of this campaign. And obviously, because of the length of our primary, the interest in it, the intensity of it, a lot of my book is about the primary. In many respects, that was the more difficult race for us. And the title of the book is The Audacity to Win. And, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about that point because you really can't understand the president, his campaign, without understanding how unlikely all of this is. You know, when we got into this thing, we didn't have anything, really. You know, we had some interest out there. But remember, he didn't even have a competitive general election when he ran for the Senate because his opponent got caught in some sex clubs. So, <laughs> yeah. So good then, but, you know, he had never even had a negative ad run against him. We hadn't done what a lot of Senate candidates do, what Ben Cardin had to do, and go to L.A. and New York and raise a lot of money and build deep relationships. And so we entered this you with no political support. You know, that was all mostly with Clinton, some with Edwards. And so um, this was kind of a ragtag army. And you have to understand that we didn't sit there and say, you know what, no one else understands, but we've got the secret sauce. We know how we're going to win the primary. Listen, we thought 95 out of 100 times you ran that primary, Hillary Clinton would win it. Three times maybe we would. Two times maybe Edwards would. I mean, we understand how, how hard this was going to be and that even if we did everything perfectly, we'd probably fall short. And so it took an enormous amount of discipline to stick to our strategy. And, you know, there's a mythology that the national press decided to lift Barack Obama on their shoulders and carry him into the Oval Office. And when you win, things do get mythologized. I remember the day after the election, um, you know, the New York Times, like all papers, had these wonderful headlines about Obama winning and the historic nature of it. And their big news analysis piece was, flawless campaign delivers Obama to the White House. I was, I don't know what campaign you were watching. <laughs> but I can assure you this one was not flawless. And that's something. I spent a lot of time in the book pointing out mistakes we made, mistakes I made, because these things do tend to get mythologized. And I think it's important for people to know where we veered off course and why we made mistakes. And I think you learn more about him and the campaign in the process. But we were criticized deeply by, for most of 2007, for our electoral strategy, which was all about the state of Iowa. We were criticized for not closing Hillary Clinton's national poll lead. We were criticized for, you know, the way he debated. It wasn't snappy enough. It wasn't funny enough. There weren't enough talking points. He was too professorial. Probably sounds familiar. He gets the same rap today. And so the book spends a lot of time about how we developed our strategy and how we had the discipline to stick to it. And there's a, that's an important insight into him. You have to understand that you know, he had never been around this track before. You know, when he went to Iowa at the end of 06, it was the first time he'd ever been in the state, South Carolina, Nevada. You know, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, they knew every elected official from city council on up in all these states, had known him for years, knew the electoral patterns, uh, knew the airports. I mean, there's just a comfort to it. Uh, and he didn't know any of that. So it's a remarkable testament to him, and I'll, I'll talk about that at the very end, about what that means for today. 
I spent a lot of time in the book obviously talking about, maybe it's not obvious, but it should be for those of you that were in the campaign, what was our campaign, which was people. Now, I've been in politics for, you know, as a profession for over 20 years. And I actually hesitated to run uh, then Senator Obama's campaign because um, it would take a toll on my family and I hadn't managed in eight years, I'd been a consultant. You guys understand it's always easier to give advice than be responsible for things. When you're managing, you're on the hook for everything. You know, the glittery things and then mostly the not so fun things. And, um, you know, I wasn't sure that I should do it or it was the right choice. And it was my wife who had a lot of to lose in this uh, transaction, um, and we had talked about that, um, who said at, you know, maybe 3 a.m. in the morning, uh, a time that Hillary Clinton would make famous later in the campaign, <laughs> who said, you know, listen, um, you know, so I just hear you all the time now increasingly talk about your frustration with the quality of the candidates, the quality of the campaigns, even the work you have to do. And so here's this guy, you know, who's not going to win in all likelihood. But, you know, you, you really have liked him since the moment you met him. It's clear if he runs, he's going to try and run a different kind of campaign, get people involved, you know, not run the gutter campaign. And it seems like the kind of thing you've always wanted to be involved with. And, you know, I said, yeah, that's right, but, but, but. And, you know, she basically said, listen, then, you know, if you don't do this, you can't complain ever again. <laughs> I mean, and she was right about that. And that's why I and so many people joined up, because it kind of spoke to the better nature of what we wanted to do. But it was the people of this campaign that made the campaign happen. In politics, uh, volunteers, even at the local level, but particularly at state and national levels, have become close to non-existent in politics, at least in terms of them playing such a meaningful role. They always, we, you know, a lot of us helped on Kerry and Gore, but it wasn't at the center of the campaign. Okay? It had been really a long time since the 68 Kennedy and McCarthy campaigns where sort of volunteerism in our party played a central role. And in the Republican Party, you probably have to go back to Reagan 76, not Reagan 80. That was a different front-runner campaign, 76, where you had that. And that started not as a strategy. It started as a dictate from Barack Obama, who said, if I do this, I want to try and run a grassroots campaign. I want to try and get young people involved. I want to try and get people who are disaffected from politics involved. And I just don't want to talk about it. I really want to do it. Now, they did marry up nicely with the fact that we didn't have anything else. <laughs> you know? <laughs> We weren't going to win this with a bunch of state senators and Congress people because they weren't for us. So that's what we set off to do. And, and what, you know, there's a lot of it. Here's what's interesting, by the way. The, 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 the grassroots volunteer, you know, army's an overused word, but that really what it was. That wasn't appreciated by the press till after the election. It wasn't appreciated by our opponents, thankfully, till after the election. It was only in the retelling. And a lot of the focus was simply on the money that our volunteers provided. And they did, a lot. You know, we had 4 million Americans provide contributions. Average contribution, $85. Top two categories of donors, not lobbyists. Well, we didn't take lobbyist money, so it couldn't be them. You know, not lawyers, not business people. It was retirees and students. You know, that's never been the case in political history. And, you know, these weren't on Ivy League kids. A lot of community college kids and people who really had to scrape it together. A lot of retirees who would write in the most moving things that would bring tears to your eyes about what they were sacrificing to give us 10 or $25. And so the money did allow us to run the most ferocious campaign that's ever been run in battleground states. Now, you guys didn't see it. Some of you might have gone to Pennsylvania, other states, which we deeply appreciate. But if you didn't live in a battleground state in this year, you know, you didn't, re you didn't witness what was happening. 
uh, and it was an onslaught, and I mean that in a good way. And our view was, you know, the election was so important, not about Barack Obama, but we couldn't afford four or eight more years of the same direction, that we had to pour everything we had into it. And that's why we spent $38 million in the state of Florida. Think about that, one state, 25 in Virginia, you know, 42 in Ohio. Uh, these are obscene numbers, but in this system, money's important. But we're really proud of the way we raised it. But the money was, was part of it, but it wasn't the most important thing. Uh, our volunteers are the reason so many people registered to vote. We registered over 6 million people in the country uh, in the fall. And voter registration, sadly, in our politics, including my party, is generally frowned upon. It's too hard to do and people don't vote. Well, in many states, the new registrants voted at a higher percentage than the previous registrants. So people were motivated. Why did an African-American man here in Baltimore vote for the very first time in his life at the age of 45? Well, he, of course, had to have some belief in Obama. But most often it was because a friend of his or family member said, you know, I'm going to register and vote for the first time. Why don't you do it? Why did a 21-year-old rural kid in Ohio spend the last 60 days uh, skipping classes and working on the campaign? It was almost always because someone in his social network had convinced him to do it. So the volunteer growth was all about the volunteers growing it. The turnout, now remember, 2000 election, very close. I mean, Clinton's elections would have been close without Perot. They would have been dead heats. We probably wouldn't have won the first one. You know, uh, Gore, Kerry, super close. Ours would have been the same. You know, amongst the people who voted in the Bush-Kerry race, Obama and McCain tied, okay? The reason that we won by six points, which doesn't sound like a lot, but is considered a landslide in presidential campaigns, is because there was 20 million new voters who'd never voted before. And they were, 60% of that group was under the age of 30. Uh, African-American turnout, for the first time in the history of America, equaled white turnout in many states. Um, so, Latino turnout set records and we won two-thirds of that vote. And that was all because of our volunteers. Yeah, you know, we had money to reach people and Barack Obama was an inspiring candidate. But it was the volunteers that made that happen. They also were out there spreading our message. You know, people don't trust any institution today, okay? Government, business, academia, faith. And, but what they trust is each other, okay? And that's how we won this election. Neighbors talking to neighbors, right? So you'd convince someone who was saying, you know, I'm kind of surprised, but I think I may vote for Obama, but I just heard this thing, and it kind of worries me. You know, Joe the plumber says he's a socialist, you know? So... <laughs> And we always believed that, yeah, Barack Obama would go out there and take that on, and Joe Biden would, and we'd have response ads on the air. But by far the most important conversation that would happen was, you know, in Toledo, Ohio, a neighbor to a neighbor saying, you know, that's not true. Uh, can I get you some more information on that? Actually, Obama would cut your taxes. McCain would raise them. That is so powerful in today's when there's a lack of trust. Also because we all, not all of us, but a lot of people spend a lot of time on computers, on cell phones, we have less personal contact than we used to. And when you can have that kind of personal contact, and that's what we had in these battleground states. Now, a lot of people not in battlegrounds helped too, but the core undecided voter was talked to by a local person. And it made all the difference in the world. So you moved our message out there. And that's going to be increasingly important because, you know, you see what's happening. There's so few people out there today, compared to even 10 years ago, who consume the nightly network news, newspapers. Sorry, but it's true. Even cable news, which everybody in politics thinks is reality, almost every undecided sort of non-political voter out there never watches Fox, MSNBC, or CNN unless there's a hurricane. They don't. 
So it's going to be the people talking to each other, sharing information. You know, that's really going to be important in the future, and it was great. The other thing our volunteers did was, uh, and this is harder to measure, and, you know, sort of the political professionals roll their eyes when I say this. The, our volunteers also kept up the spirit of the campaign, okay? You know, we had rough days on the campaign, but it was hard to ever get too dispirited when you knew there was millions of people out there who were giving us time they didn't have to give, giving us money they didn't have to give. And I can't tell you how many times. It numbered into over 100 that Barack Obama would call me after an event if I wasn't there with him in person and say, I don't want to let these people down. And see, for him, in the year 2030, when he's sitting on a stage being interviewed, and let's talk about your 2008 campaign, former president, and what comes to mind first? It won't be that, you know, he beat John McCain in three debates, although that was important and kind of fun. <laughs> and it won't be, you know, uh, man, that was really crazy when McCain picked Palin. Uh, you know, that was important and kind of fun, too. What he'll say... As sure as I'm standing here in Baltimore tonight, he said it was, you know, what I remember is the volunteers of the campaign and the spirit they brought to the campaign and the involvement, and they won the election for us, and that's true. We wouldn't have gotten out of Iowa if it hadn't been for amazing volunteerism in the state of Iowa that completely changed the complexion of the Iowa caucuses, as we did later in the general election. So those are some real highlights in the book. Obviously, um, I spent a lot of time talking about uh, and you can, by the way, when we get into discussion, I'm sure you have, you know, what happened with the economic collapse or Palin, or you just ask me those big moments. I'm just giving you kind of the broad strokes here. And obviously, I, I write a lot about Barack Obama. Uh, he was the central actor. Uh, there are too much attention paid to, you know, people like me in politics. Um, you know, Charles de Gaulle has a great uh, quote, which is, uh, you know, the cemeteries of the world are filled uh, with indispensable men. And... Um, <laughs> You know, that couldn't be truer about, you know, me and, and all my colleagues. Um, the only indispensable people in this effort were our volunteers and Barack Obama. And, you know, what he did is really nothing short of amazing. As I mentioned, he had never been down this track before. And so it is a grueling thing. You know, it is flawed in many ways. It is too long. It is too expensive. It is too banal, more often than not. The press coverage is all about horse race. But it is very transparent. You cannot hide who you are. And if you cannot survive that crucible, you do not deserve to be president. And, um, you know, he got stronger in voters' minds at the end of the campaign than when he entered it, even with, with people who didn't vote for him. And by the way, 47% of the people didn't vote for us. And I can assure you they didn't do that casually. They felt very strongly about it, and they clearly still do. We live in a very divided country, and that's going to sadly be the case for some time in my view. But... Uh, his performance as a candidate. Our grassroots uh, volunteers, they were not there because we had a great website or we had good emails. They were there because of him, okay? It was a relationship between a candidate and millions of Americans that started as interest and intrigue and grew into something very powerful, the likes of which we've never seen. You know, it was him, despite being, you know, going through a proctological exam uh, every day, you know, who kept his wits about him who refused to play the old political game, which is I'm just going to talk in sound bites. He treated voters like adults. Um, and we ran a tough campaign. The only judge I care in that respect is voters. And we obviously monitor whether they think, you know, our campaign, McCain's campaign, Clinton's campaign, is it fair or not. And they judged us to be completely in bounds. And we got criticized for that. You probably remember there was moments in the fall where people got a little skittish. Well, these guys are getting swift-boated. 
Well, Palin's all, you know, there was a moment in time where everybody thought Palin was the greatest masterstroke in the history of American politics. <laughs> and then it was a lot of the party, and you got to understand about us, and I write a lot about this, because we were an outsider. And by the way, there's been no outsider candidate, meaning someone who didn't have a lot of traditional political support in the beginning of their campaign, ever win their party's nomination, much less the presidency. This is unprecedented. And... You know, we were, it was kind of an uncomfortable alliance when we became the nominee. All these senators, governors, interest group leaders, he'd only been in Washington two years, most of them hadn't been for us, and we're running this crazy internet volunteer campaign. They weren't real hip to that. And so, you know, when we'd have moments of perceived struggle, they'd leap into fray, helpfully with their criticism, publicly, never privately, of course. And, you know, it was, he's got to hit back harder, you know, and McCain's got these terrible ads on the air, he has to do the same thing. And, you know, Barack Obama just wouldn't do it. You know, he'd rather lose with some dignity intact than win that way. And the truth is most candidates in office, there are a few kind of sadists out there who like the negativity. Most people who run for office, though, don't do it because I'd really like to kneecap my opponent. You know, the process kind of leads you in that direction. It's hard to withstand it. You know, when your supporters and all the referees out there are saying, you're going to lose because you're not being hard enough. And he did that. So, um, and the other thing about him is that you know, a lot of business people have read my book and because, you know, there's a lot about technology and management, but also about culture. And the truth is, a presidential campaign, you know, a library, a business, a school, a family, a relationship, it's nothing, you know, it's a collection of human beings. And how those human beings trust each other or don't, communicate with each other or don't, make decisions healthily or don't, is going to play a big factor in whether you succeed or not. And we were an enormously healthy campaign. I think most of all, because almost all of us, from the volunteers on up to me, weren't there for any other reason than we believed in this guy and believed in the moment. Uh, and he was just a normal human being. Most people in politics are not. <laughs> I think there's probably a lot of business leaders that aren't. I can only speak about politics. You know, they can fly off the handle about small things and they're erratic. It didn't mean that he would abide poor performance. He wouldn't. But he was just normal. You didn't have to wake up every day worrying about his mood. And that's unusual in campaigns. You just could deal with kind of what was in front of you. And he had kind of a healthy bemusement about the process. That was very, you know, we would often joke at the end of the night uh, about, about how banal and kind of silly it could be. Um, and that's healthy. Instead of getting really upset about it, you know, you'd laugh at the attacks a little bit and kind of... And I, and I think that's healthy. So I think you'll learn a lot about him in the book and a lot of things that really inform where we are today. Um, I will just end here. We obviously have an election right in front of us. And it tells you how swiftly our politics can move. And that's going to happen for some time. Until people, particularly independent voters, feel absolutely secure and confident, not just in the direction of the country, but in their leaders, you're going to see a lot of movement. You know, Republicans had a great O2 had a good 04, we had a great 06, a spectacular 08, and they're probably gonna have a pretty good 10. Uh, how good it is, you know, will depend on what all of you do and what all of us do in the next 40 days. But what is I'm most proud of is that at the heart of his campaign, he didn't run because he thought he had necessarily the best quote-unquote plans, although he was proud of them. He didn't run because he clearly thought he had the best route to winning because we didn't think that. He ran simply because he thought our nation's leaders were continuing to dodge tough problems. That it was, you know, we've tried to do fundamental health care reform for a century. And really it stopped trying. 
we tried to lead the world in energy economy for 40 years, and we fell behind and still are behind China, and India is right on our tail. And that's going to tell the future. We won the industrial age, we won the automotive age, and the information age. If we do not dominate the new energy economy, we are not going to be as strong economically as we need to be. And it could be quite worse than that. Um, you know, education reform K through 12. We just kept doing the same old things. And I know some of the things he's done and proposed doesn't make everybody happy. But we can't just keep abiding. When our kids are competing against the kids in Bangalore and Beijing, we owe them better than we're doing. Some schools are great, but not all of them are. And so we have to relook at that. Uh, you know, our relationship with the rest of the world had clearly eroded. And we needed to strengthen it, not because we want to be popular, so that we can solve common problems and, and flourish economically overseas. Um, he promised to end the war in Iraq, which he did. But my point is that all of these things um, had been dogging us for a long, long time. And everything in Washington, and this goes true, too, for probably Annapolis and state capitals, but it's more pronounced in Washington. Everything conspires against do anything tough or long-term. Everything. Because the prism is all through the politics of the moment. I can't tell you how many reporters have asked me, so the Recovery Act, is it a failure? So why do you ask me that? Well, it's polling 44%. I said, really, that's the question you're going to ask me? Because I can assure you it's not, ha the president doesn't look at it that way at all. It's how many jobs did it create? Did it prevent a Great Depression? Is it sprouting up a new energy economy? But that goes for every issue. And elected officials, even well-meaning ones, when, you know, going gets tough, and after we lost that Senate race in Massachusetts, bringing us down to 59 senators, almost everybody in the party, including people who had just walked the walk on health care, wanted to run for the exit door. Okay? And that's the moment I'm proudest about, because he said, no. I don't know how, and I don't know if, but we're going to go forward, even if it ended up in a flaming defeat. I can't look myself in the mirror and say, we're going to just walk away from this because the politics have gotten too tough. And listen, when the economy is so bad, and it is bad, it's getting better, but if you're not feeling it in your own life, you're not terribly interested in economic discussion. You know, economists would vote for Democrats in, you know, 95 to 5. I wish we had more economists. But, but, but they will at some point because the economy will heal and we'll have a wonderful story to tell that then people will accept. People aren't willing to accept this until they feel better. The reality of health care over time, it's really going to take another four or five years, will be unveiled, and it won't be a spin war at all. We're all health care consumers. We'll have our own view of it. And I'm highly, highly confident that it's going to be, most importantly, a huge win for the country, but hugely politically popular. The new energy economy that's sprouting out. We will have wound down two wars in the right way. All of these things are really going to, and the demographics in this country, the younger voters, Latinos, increased African-American participation, particularly in presidential years, um, I think does signal good politics down the line. But this is a rough ride because, you know, you've got to remember, Reagan didn't have it nearly this bad in 82, and his approval rating at this point was down to like 34. I thought that's where ours would be. I thought it would be a little worse. The president reminds me I told him that. Because the truth is, even his, there are people say, oh, the president's approval rating's at 45, 47. Well, we got 53% of the vote. And, you know, yeah, when he, you know, had the 2 million people on the National Mall, his approval rating was 65, but that was an illusion, okay? The number is 50, because again, those 47 people meant it when they voted against him. And these approval ratings are large, for the most part, polls of 2010 voters, which is a much more conservative, older electorate. So he's only lost seven or eight points amongst that group, but amongst people who voted in 08 or are likely to vote in 12, you know, his approval rating is about what his vote number was. 
And so, you know, it's not like I'm doing somersaults, but I think he's going to be fine. Uh, he's, but this election is going to be tough for our party. And um, I think we're making progress in the last couple weeks. I'm, I'm beginning to see more encouraging signs out there. Uh, but if right now the Republicans are kind of like a hurricane. And usually what happens is, and in most elections, by the way, in the last 20, 24 years, one party has done quite a bit better than the other. I think that's probably going to continue for some time. But usually what happens is, you know, you're kind of a Category 1 in July, and then you get the Category 3 in September, and then you get the Category 5 right at Election Day. Well, these guys are a Category 5 right now, and, and they're not going to abate. So I don't take now. So they've, they've maxed out, but they've maxed out at a very dangerous level. When I say they've maxed out, what does that mean? It means their projected turnout amongst conservatives is through the roof, and sort of the independent voters, they're going to go their way, have already gone their way. But in August in particular, we were kind of at our low point, which we're beginning to see, and I think it's being over. You know, the press can't help themselves. Oh, the Democrats are resurgent. No, we're not resurgent. We're just kind of slowly making some progress where more voters are looking at it as a choice, right? And, you know, that what's going on is not a budding love affair out there with the American people and Rush Limbaugh and Sarah Palin and Mitch McConnell. I mean, the Republican numbers are terrible. Um, it's just people are frustrated, so they're going to take it out on the party. But independent voters are starting to see it a little bit more as a choice, as are some Democrats who were on the fence, and they're coming home. And Democratic enthusiasm is starting to tick up a little bit. It's got to tick up more. This is all a turnout game. So those of you guys that are helping O'Malley here and other candidates, uh, you know, some states, the numbers this year are tough. It's tough to get our candidate to 50%. Here, the numbers just scream out at you. We just, we don't have to get turnout like we had in 08. We just got to get decent enough turnout here amongst Democrats, and Republicans in this state don't have any chance to win. So that's really the focus over the next six weeks. Um, and, you know, it'll be overread. You know, if the Republicans fall short, which I'm hoping they do, that would be fun. But, oh, my God, what a miracle. What does this mean? And if, and if they have a great night, oh, my God, what does it mean for Obama? And, you know, he is great in that he takes the long view of things. I mean, you know, part of it is you just kind of, that's what's going to happen. There'll be one path. Or, and, but what's, what's important is, okay, in the next two years, what do we have to do? Well, we've got to do immigration reform. We've got to deal with the debt and deficit in a serious adult way. We've got to continue to fend off uh, efforts to attack health care reform. We've got to do more on energy jobs. We obviously have a lot more to do in the civil rights area. We've got to deal with Afghanistan. Uh, and, you know, that's what he's worried about. And the election will come, and I look forward to that, because right now, we're not on the ballot. We're not. This isn't our campaign. A lot of Democrats' campaign. A lot of people have been great partners, but it's different. It's different. You're kind of doing a bank shot. And, you know, I look forward to, to that, because we'll have a, a straight-line effort uh, with whoever's across the field. Um, you know, hopefully it'll be Sarah Palin. Um, <laughs> But I think given, the, you know, given what the president's had to deal with, I don't think our luck's that good. I think we'll probably uh, not get her. But uh, anyway, so those are some thoughts about the book and the OA campaign and what's going on today. But I'd be uh, happy, thrilled to take any thoughts you guys have. I'm sure you have a lot. Mr. Bluff, we'd like to thank you for coming to Baltimore. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois said that the problem of the 20th century would be the color line, and it's just fascinating to see you and uh, the president work together. Here in Baltimore, majority African-American city, we have our challenges. Any thoughts on race and, and how race may or may not have played a factor in your inner team? Thank you. Well, here's, I mean, this is what Barack Obama said. 
when he was deciding whether to run. And you looked at the states that would determine his success or not. Iowa was preeminent, New Hampshire after that. Very little diversity. And he basically said, listen, I, you know, people either accept me or they won't. My name, my race, my background. You know, I was a community organizer. I've been in Washington long. Uh, he had a lot of faith in people. And that's what we saw. And, and I do think that, listen, there are elements out there that obviously are using some loaded language and their motivations may not be pure in their political opposition. We saw even some of this at some of the McCain-Palin rallies. But, but that is really a small, small, small fraction of the people who opposed us. You know, and, and I think it was such a heartening thing to see. Um, and I hope that, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that we do not have still racial issues and gender issues and class issues. They're going to, unfortunately, we've made progress, but they're bedeviling us still today and will for some time. I'm just giving you an analysis of the campaign that it did not play a central role. There's no doubt that some African-American voters were motivated by him. Now, African-Americans turned out at huge numbers for Kerry, not as high as this. That was part of it. I think some young people. Were there some people in the other party who said, I, I, I would have voted for Hillary, but I'm not going to vote for him because he's African-American? Uh, it's infinitesimal, really. Um, but, you know, it was something that, again, what's interesting is, you know, we all... And listen, I thought the speech he gave during the Reverend Wright affair, which was just a remarkable moment because it was a hit to the main engine. The political playbook says, go out and do some interviews and then try and move pie it. And he said, listen, he did. He did great interviews on all the networks. And he said, that doesn't satisfy me. And I need to go talk about this. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a better idea. And so um, <laughs> he went out and did it. And he wrote that speech really from like midnight to 3 a.m., three nights in a row. And I remember saying, listen, you know, you don't have any time to write this, and it is kind of a personal speech, so, you know, do we have to bring down the schedule? But if we do that, everyone's going to say the campaign's in disarray. And he's like, Pluff, I, um, I've been thinking about these issues probably a little bit more than you have through your life. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I can write this speech. Um, there, the only, there was some tension in the primary because we were getting walloped with African-American voters by Hillary Clinton for a long time. So a lot of our African-American staff and supporters said, listen, we got to go out and campaign in the community more. And, and, you know, sort of the strategy schedule, that was my responsibility. And I understood it's no fun, and he didn't like it either, to be losing by 30 or 40. But no one knew who he was. And we just said, listen, we're never going to get to any African-American voters if we don't win Iowa. If we win Iowa, this whole thing changes, and it did. When that state, the numbers in South Carolina changed overnight amongst African-American voters. You know, and we won 75%. And then obviously when some comments were made that shouldn't have been made by our political adversaries, our support went to 95, the rest of the primary. So that, there was some tension there. And, uh, but we, you know, what we felt was, listen, we're in all, almost every scenario we're going to lose. We have one pathway. This is it. It's like a sporting team who says, you know, this is our game plan today. It's the only one available to us. And it may not, but we're not going to deviate. I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Right, every time, every game, we say, oh, we're going to commit to the run, and then we don't run because we get stuffed a few times, and you know, Donovan McNabb ends up in Washington, sadly. So our view is you've got to stick with the plan. So, but it was a hard, and listen, I do think, you know, there are Latino candidates getting elected all across America today 
in places with very few Latino voters. I was very involved in Governor Deval Patrick's race in Massachusetts in 2006. 5% African-American voters and a history of racial tension that still exists today. You know, Hillary Clinton almost broke a ceiling. My, I actually hope Sarah Palin's the one that does it in 12. But, <laughs> and gets nominated. So I hope we're, you know, where there's, so, so just from a political standpoint, I'm not talking about societal economic where the problems are still profound. I hope we can begin to put this to rest, because at the end of the campaign, when it looked like we were doing well, remember, all of the coverage was, well, but is there going to be a quote-unquote Bradley effect? Are voters going to go into the booth and not vote for him because he's African-American? And that just didn't happen. And so my view is, let's just stop it. You know, people can win races in every part of this country, uh, in every office, uh, if, you're the, if you're a good candidate. And uh, that's a good lesson. Yes, sir. All right, sir, thank you very much for coming here. Thank, I want to thank you for everything that you've done um, in helping uh, President Obama. Um, I've, I'm a Daily Coast um, community organizer, and um, I volunteered for the campaign. Well, thank you. But I want to say, sir, that I can assure you that we're going to do very well this year because there's certain things that, that I, I can do, and, that, and I can promise you that... Whatever ideas that you had that you want to implement to help the Democrats in this election cycle, go for it because you won't fail. Hmm. And with that, I just want to, I do have one question. What do you think the, what do you think will be said the day after the election by the Becks and Palins after they lose so badly? Well, you're putting me in a good mood, man. If that... <laughs> Well, if they don't meet their expectations, and I think their private expectations are, you know, massive gains in the House and, you know, getting very close to taking back the Senate and winning every major governor's race out there. And, you know, you know I don't think that's going to happen. The only way it happens is if our turnout really is abysmal. But if we, if we pick up, it won't. So if they don't meet their expectation, and particularly if they don't win back the House or the Senate, um, oh, I mean, it's, it's, what's going to happen is Beck and Palin are going to say the reason we didn't win is because we weren't true enough. And we need to have more conservative candidates who are really going to energize the base. Of course, that's the absolutely wrong message. Okay, I'll go on a rant here for a minute. What, what's happening right now is that with Christine O'Donnell, Rand Paul, Sharon Engel, it is, it's almost, it's inf it, it is the tip of the iceberg. Because no matter what happens, they have a good election, or a bad election, in 11 or 12, the grassroots of Republicans are going to be even more insistent that they nominate conservative candidates. And if you're a moderate Republican, or even a center-right Republican, why on earth would you even think about running? Because you're going to lose. So even from a self-selection standpoint, they're going to get more conservative candidates. And in a year in 12, where the electorate becomes much more to our liking than in 10, and hopefully, atmospherically, things are a little bit better. You know, the economy's not going to be great by then, but it's all about people's perception. Reagan won 49 states with an unemployment rate at 7.5, and he had what, you know, but people said, okay, well, I like where we're going, even though I'm not thrilled with where we are today. And that's a thing we're trying to put in front of voters now. You know, the former mayor of Boston, Kevin White, had a great uh, quote around election times. He would say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And... Uh, <laughs> 
that's where we are today. So, but I think that's what they're going to do. They're not going to sit around navel-gazing and say, man, we need more Mike Castles. They're going to say we need more O'Donnells and more Palins. And hopefully also would make Palin more likely to run. Hopefully she can't turn down the siren song of a Republican nomination. Yes. Hi, thank you for coming. I um, had two questions about the campaign. First, why is it that the Republicans seem to always hijack the nature of the discussion and we're talking about huge deficits in the Bush tax cuts as opposed to the Obama tax cuts and the um, benefits of saving GM and, and Chrysler. And um, secondly, President Clinton this morning on MSNBC said that what he learned from Newt Gingrich in 1994 was that you could nationalize a midterm election, and I wondered what your views were on that. Um, well, I was running a Senate race in 94. Uh, even back then, you really couldn't nationalize. you got to remember, when the Republicans had their great night in 94, 13% of the people knew what the contract of America was, and they were all Republicans. This is a mythology thing. I hate to disagree with the former president. I've done so from time to time in the last couple of years. I don't, I don't agree with that, particularly with all the money. Okay? You guys see that here. I mean, you can't turn on the TV or an Internet or your mailbox without being flooded by stuff. For, like, true swing voters, it's even worse. And in a lot of states where you've got three competitive house races in a media market, a governor, a senate race, I mean, it's just wall to wall. So these races now are muscular, meaning voters make a decision based on the two candidates. You used to have 20, 25 years ago where there was less money spent. It was more national, more, and people were more likely to affiliate with a party. Now these things take on their own identity. Um, so now the Republicans are trying to nationalize the election. And I don't, listen, you can always do a better job of communicating, but you also have to understand where people are, okay? I mean, I, you know, we talk to a lot of swing voters out there. You know, they're not terribly interested in the story about how we save the auto industry right now unless their job was saved. They're not interested in we could have been in the Great Depression. I mean, we're making those arguments, but you've got to understand, they say, you know what, my sister's been in my basement for 99 weeks, and I want her out, and she didn't have a job. <laughs> oh, I don't have a job. It's like, you know, spare me. I mean, I'm just being realistic, Okay. And, and listen, there is a reason, you know, we are doing, you know, better. Um, you know, we have a huge gender gap still, particularly women with college degrees. You know, people who are in the business, you know, we're doing better because they understand that, hey, the Republicans basically led us into a great recession. If they had anything to do with it, we'd be in a great depression now, right? But it's hard. It's hard. And, and I think the best thing there are, for Democrats out there who aren't, because there are, you know, there's still a decent percentage of the country now who says their personal economic situation is okay. They don't think the country's is. But who's, you know, there's still some Democrats, so their economic situation may, may be okay, but they're not thrilled about voting. They're the people that say, well, let's rewind the tape. Here's all the things we've done, okay? I find that to be very effective. Winding down the war in Iraq, delivering on health care, education, whatever. okay, well, and, you know, so-and-so candidate, who you may not know, actually supported us on all that, so you ought to go vote for him, okay? But for an independent voter... And the, the spending thing is real. It is real. People are b deeply bothered by it. And it's not just a figment of... And obviously, the, the academic discussion, you know, these guys made it... I mean, listen, Clinton gave him a surplus, and it turned into a historic deficit. We can't trust him as far as we can throw him on these things. And in fact, the deficit's probably going to come down in Obama's first full fiscal year. But... Um, the spending thing's real. And we as a party, quite frankly, at the national level, haven't answered it well enough. And, um, and, and what the, so the argument there is much more of a, a, of a counterpunch, which is, well, we had to spend some money to save the economy, and we did, but we've cut a bunch of programs. But look at these guys. 
unpaid for entitlements, unpaid for wars, unpaid for tax cuts. And I do think the tax cut, we're winning the tax cut debate. I wish everybody in the party would understand that. <laughs> this is a debate we will win and, and are winning, okay? Because actually this is a simple one. It's we want to give tax cuts to the middle class. You say, now these Republicans like to yell about spending. They want to borrow $700, $700 billion from the Chinese to give tax cuts to millionaires and billionaires. Okay? And so, you know, I wish everybody in our party wasn't afraid of these debates. Listen, in 08, and, and listen, we obviously had some, some favorable political wins, but nonetheless, we actively engaged a foreign policy and national security debate with McCain and the tax debate. We won the tax cut argument with McCain, which is saying something for an African-American candidate from Chicago, Illinois. I mean, it is. That's where, you know, it's hard. So, you know, we, we, we need to fight a little bit more aggressively. And, and if we do, I think we can do a little bit better. I want to thank you, you know, for the smart work you've done on behalf of the Americans as well as our President Obama. Thank you. First. And um, secondly, you know, I want to assert that there's a general opinion that um, the politics in Washington, you know, is um, very much a, a system with a lot of limitations. I think you may have alluded to that, that in the sense that there are a lot of things that you cannot do. And, and I've been thinking uh, about this, you know, if, for quite some time, that it seems like it's a system, like other systems, be in the judicial system. There's a lot of things that you can't do as opposed to things that you can do. And I think you also said, if I heard you correctly, that a lot of things that have been laid fundamental, strategic, or doing things a different way may not, in another sense, manifest until four or five years down the road. No doubt, yeah. And this is the case, you know, with every president. You get two terms. And that's the law. However, not too long ago, uh, that limitation did not exist. So what I'm getting at is that what would it take for you to be outrageously courageous, as you have been, and introduce an idea that could change is you have been changing the system to reintroduce so that work can be finished in three terms. <laughs> yes. Because we all know uh, that just to you're get spark it started a controversy, and not finish uh, it is not involved. Yes. Well, I, I guess I would say that... Um, you know, we got to get our second term first. <laughs> and, uh, but, listen, I, uh, I, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I think I support the amendment that was passed back in the 40s. I think that probably in this country, eight years is enough. Uh, but, but you do, here's the point. I mean, part of it is that, I, you know, listen, when, when the president at the, uh, like his debt commission's going to, uh, in December, come back and say, here's a bunch of options, none of them fun, none of them politically easy to kind of deal with the deficit and debt. You'll have immigration reform. What's, what's going to happen? The last election will have just been over this November. 
The next election is not for two years. But people in Washington and a lot of people in our party will be calling us saying, you know, you guys can't touch any of this because, you know, the election's coming up. Uh, it is a real problem, and I guarantee what's going to happen. Some of these Republicans, and, you know, their ranks are going to grow, hopefully not too much, uh, and some of them are going to be very conservative folks who've been kind of darlings of the Tea Party. Uh, you know, they're going to get there, right, all sort of ready to take on the system. They're going to look around and say, you know what, this isn't so bad. I've got all this staff, decent salary. I kind of want to stay here. And by the way, I think you'll then see some rupture between the grassroots Republicans and their Washington establishment, because they're expecting them to, um, you know, close down every federal agency in America. And when that doesn't happen, they're going to say, what the heck? It's sure, I mean, that's going to happen. So the, the political nature of this is a problem. I mean, it, it moves immediately to that. And, for, and, and President said this in an interview, I think it was Katie Couric a few months ago, and, it, you know, some people didn't like it on the Hill. I, I understand why. But he said, listen, one of the problems is, for a lot of lawmakers, their job definition, their job description in their mind has become to win re-election. And he's right about that. He's right about that. And if that is your North Star again, you will not do anything hard. You know, the president often will say, you know, I'm interested in providing, and, and what he, he's obviously saying, listen, we've got urgent problems at the moment, so he's not saying excuse those. But it's also time we had leadership focused, uh, you know, more on the next generation and the next election. We haven't had that in a long time. But anyway, we should go to the next question. Yeah. I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I was a volunteer uh, during the Obama campaign. And one thing I know is someone who lives in Maryland, you have to go to Pennsylvania, other states, <laughs> to get them elected because our votes here don't count as much. I was, <laughs> but I'm frustrated that like, as soon as the election was over, we realized that it was the Senate that was going to block everything. And I never received an email from the campaign asking me to call people in Maine, to go to Maine. I would have moved to Maine if it had meant an energy bill. And so why wasn't the campaign engaged in pressuring the well, senators? Well, I mean, some of you, I'm sure, did. I mean, we sent out a lot, we've sent on health care, on financial reform, we've, on Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So make sure you're, si you're signed up because we have asked people to do a lot. Uh, and probably some of you have. Uh, call senators. So we, I don't know, maybe... I don't know what happened with you individually, and yeah. I apologize for that. But no, we've had five million people. Think about that. That's a big number of people. It's a million more people than contributed who have volunteered in some way on a legislative issue, whether it was to hold a press conference, door knock their neighbors, call senators. Um, sadly, the truth is that um, you know lawmakers are not as swayed by that kind of activity as they should be. Mm -hmm. I do think that the work all of you did around health care made it happen. Because if you guys hadn't been out there calling the House members, visiting the House members, I, I, a number of them have told me without that they wouldn't, I mean, there was clear there was intensity in an army there. But, you know, some of these Republican senators, they're not going to be swayed by, you know, 20,000 calls. I mean, you know, they're more swayed by their polling, quite frankly. I will say this, though. You know, when Susan Collins and Olympia Snow and occasionally Scott Brown, Lindsey Graham on a couple things, have supported us, um, you know, I don't agree with, with most of what they do. We should really give them an enormous amount of credit. Because in this Republican Party, you know, they are absolutely excoriated for that. You remember Tom Coburn, the guy from Oklahoma who's, you know, never supported us on anything. He was at a town hall. 
And somebody came up and started, you know, really saying some nasty things about Nancy Pelosi. So he said, I haven't ever agreed with Nancy Pelosi in anything. But, you know, she's a nice person, you know. He was completely ripped apart by, you know, the limbals of the world for that. That's how bad it is. That's how bad it is. So I'm not excusing them voting like on Don't Ask, Don't Tell. There was at least 10 or 12 of them that have been lifelong supporters of the repeal, who Mitch McConnell got him in a room and said, listen, on this matter of civil rights, uh, if we participate in this, it's going to hurt our turnout. So we all got to... And now, they'll, now they're saying, well, we'll pass it in December after the election. We'll see. Yeah. Um, so th so but, but it is a very dangerous thing. The, the House, there are no moderate Republicans in the House because we beat them in 06 and 08. In the Senate, there are a few, but it's been really difficult. And so when they pop up and actually on financial reform, obviously we got three of them to support us, you know, they absolutely get hammered for that. Um, so the work that's been done has been important, but I, it's not going to really affect Republicans. What they're worried about is primaries. But the work that you all did out there on health care and financial reform is really important to getting it done. Really important. Um, hello. Well, I Hi. always keep hearing these complaints about the government. And see, our problem in the beginning of this century is that in the middle of the last century, all the government programs that help make the middle class possible and live in our quiet little family cocoons has... We've lived in a cocoon so long, we, we, f we forget to look at anything outside. We don't know where it came from. Government's not perfect, but more often than not, government more than corporations have helped us. Uh, the major corporations are like a tribe of Gullivers in Lilliput. Um, I've read, the, if you read Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, the real one, it's, it's not a children's story. Um, the story is that Gulliver goes to Lilliput, a bunch of little people, and the effort it takes to support Gulliver threatens to turn the whole country into a famine, and his basic bodily needs are, make environmental catastrophes for this country. And uh, we, we, the big corporations and the banks and the oil and the pharmacy company, we're hearing again about a faulty product with the oral birth patch. I thought, here we go again for the 110th time. Um, are like Gulliver's wanting more and more and more, and uh, the, the, the Tea Party, who takes their name from a drink that originated in China, <laughs> um, seem to think that by feeding Gulliver more, somehow we'll all be better off as, as the majority get less and less. Um, my point is, as I'm afraid that um, it's going to happen the same way here as it's happened every time there's been too great between the have and the have-nots in a republic. They become hereditary aristocracies. It happened in Athens with Alexander the Great. It happened in 17th century yeah. Holland. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know who to talk to about these concerns. And I'm afraid we are going to turn into a hereditary aristocracy well, if we don't pull the reins. I would just simply, you know, the, the disparity in our country is obviously growing, and that's a severe problem. I mean, the middle class has been eroding. Those in the middle class uh, trying to get the middle class have seen their wages stagnate. The last 10 years have been the toughest on them in the history of the country. Um, I do think that, listen, you know, you know, obviously the president believes in government playing an appropriate role. Uh, but, mo for, and listen, we, we went out there and did a recovery act. We rescued the automotive industry and its workers. Mm -hmm. We had to give more assistance to other industries, which, by the way, all were politically death, but it was the right thing to do for the country. Um, so we've been willing to, you know, and obviously um, his leadership on health care and other matters, but the jobs are going to come, the jobs that will be sustaining and good are all going to come from the private sector. Now, increasingly, they're not coming from big corporations. They're coming from entrepreneurs and innovators. 
You know, you see them here in Baltimore. The high tech, the biosciences, the energy jobs, the healthcare technology jobs. There are more and more great businesses in the service industry with the aging population. So what we have to do is, is enact policies, clarity that allows the private sector, the good actors in the private sector to prosper. And then all governmental policies really do need to be aimed at how do we lift people into the middle class and how do we help the middle class. Yeah. And that's clearly what the president's orientation is. And obviously the Republican Party is completely different. If they, you know, take over again, uh, now luckily we have the president there so they can't run unfettered like they did last time. You know, it is all about the wealthy corporate interest. I mean, why are the oil companies and the insurance companies and all these shadowy billionaires spending money to own, try and buy the elections? Well, because they want the keys back. They liked it. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hi. Um, thank you both for, uh, for this evening and thank the uh, organizers of the event. I have one very quick uh, two-second question, and that is everybody's screaming on the right side of repeal Obamacare. When's the last time we heard care mentioned with any Republican initiative? <laughs> That's one thing. And then the more uh, question that I have for you is with reference to the economy as, let's say, a big piece of pie. Okay, you've got the government and you've got the private sector. Those are your two big uh, portions of it. If the economy is shrinking in the private sector panic that we had in 2008 and government doesn't step in and government doesn't spend at a time like that when it's the only thing big enough to do that, what happens to the yeah. overall pie? Doesn't it, in fact, shrink even more? Yeah. And that, I think, is a real cl crystal clear, simple truth that people will buy of maybe now's the time to spend and later is the time to pay back, but very uh, soon later, as in like another two years or... Yeah. Well, what I'd say is, you know, we have, we have spent a lot. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot. A historic recovery act and a, a lot of other things to try and prime the... And listen, if those things hadn't been done, We'd have unemployment, most economists believe, at 18 to 20 percent now nationally. We would have no positive growth in the horizon. Um, we would be in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And what you have to remember is President Roosevelt did some great things. Things weren't so great until we entered the Second World War and started arming the world. People kind of forget that. It wasn't just WAPA. It's like, well... And fortunately, we don't have a world war in the offing. But that was, and what happened right after the war stopped, we went into an absolute horrid recession, almost another depression. So we've done a lot. Today, finally, with a little Republican support, we finally got a set of small business tax breaks, lending, incentives to uh, grow R&D. Those things are going to help. And they cost money, not a huge amount of money. But the fact of the matter is, if you tried to say right now, listen, you, that's not what the American, from a political standpoint, the American people don't want to do that right now. But secondly, that's less important than what's the right thing to do. You, you couldn't get, you know, 150 votes in the House or 40 in the Senate for it. Now, listen, the economy is improving glacially, painfully slowly, but we're headed in the right direction. There are many big corporations sitting on a ton of money. And it's infuriating that they're not hiring people and putting it to work. And so, um, but, you know, uh, listen, the president's always going to look for things to do. But the notion that we would somehow have the ability uh, to do a big recovery. And listen, there are some, and I know, you know, you open up the New York Times and Paul Krugman will say that, you know, the debt and deficit are not important. 
I respect people's opinions. I've talked to too many people who believe if we do not get a handle on this, you know, we will face a fate like Europe did. And then the choices are going to be abysmal. We can't continue like this. And, you know, the orgy's gone on for too long. And it's happened under Democratic and Republican watches. President Clinton actually did some tough things in 93 that did get it under control for a while. Not the debt so much, but the deficit. And look, we had huge economic growth. And he paid a political price for that. We need to deal with the deficit, but we have to deal with the debt too. And that's ugly stuff because it requires a bunch of painful choices that I think the American people will be, you know, willing to, uh, you know, review at least if they think it's being dealt with honestly and hopefully in a little bit of a bipartisan. So, listen, I think the government should do it all it can to prime the pump. But what I'm most proud about in the Recovery Act, aside from stopping a Great Depression, is the jobs that are being created and the businesses that are starting. You know, businesses that are making the batteries for electric cars, businesses that are building solar panels, businesses that are doing healthcare technology. And so these are businesses that pay people well and that will be around for a long time and are not reliant on government money other than some seed money. And then they'll take it from there. But there's obviously too few of them. And that's what we have to build is more of that. And listen, the sad thing is, you know, I'm not an economist. There's a lot, many of you here know more about this than I do, so I should probably not go on. But, you know, this is one of the more difficult periods we've dealt with, not just because of the scale of it, but it's clear that we have to create whole new jobs and industries out there. We're not just waiting for things to come back. Some employers are. Most aren't. Well, we got to replace it. And that's why, and we know where those jobs are going to be. A lot of them are still service, but they're in a lot of these high technology areas. Thank okay. you very sure. much. We just want to say, um, make sure no one leaves. He will be signing books right afterwards. But we're going to take these last four questions, and um, he'll be signing I'll books right outside quick. of the hallway. Rapid fire. <laughs> okay, it's not a question so much. It's just a, I'm a 52-year-old man. It's my very first time voting for anybody. Oh, that's great. I, <laughs> thank you. I take Barack Obama very, very personal, very personal. And I, since I can't tell him, I can tell you. Thank you very much. Very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe you'll be able to tell him personally at some point, sir. I hope you do. I just have a small suggestion on how I think that you could ace the midterms. So if you agree with me, you can pass it on to your boss. That would be okay. I think um, there's been so many great things that have come from the Recovery Act, um, from health care that have really helped a lot of Americans in rural areas, to small cities, to towns. And I don't think their voices are being heard at all. And I think the narrative needs to be personal because there's no way that Fox News can screw with that. If someone really speaks from the heart on how these programs have helped them, I think that's going to ace the midterms. And if it does, you can tell the president he can call me and thank me. <laughs> <laughs> Another very succinct um, suggestion. How about the next presidential go-round? We play musical chairs with Joe, who I love, and Hillary, who I didn't support, but I think it would really give a great oomph to that 52% of us that have been waiting a really long time. Thank you. So, we love Joe Biden. 
and Hillary Clinton, and they're doing great in their roles. Now, if I was still living in Chicago, I would ask you to register to vote in Delaware so you can vote for Chris Coons, but that's not how we do things outside of Illinois. You vote here. Um, I mean, I guess I was going to say that I know there's a natural ebb and flow in enthusiasm, although you couldn't tell it from being here, but enthusiasm of voters between election cycles and whoever's in power, you know, doesn't quite have the same outsider appeal. But I'm wondering if there was maybe an opportunity missed to keep that grassroots engagement in ways that aren't just um, the usual writing to your senator, calling your senator, um, things like that, that were engaged in, you know, the Great Depression. Um, I'm thinking like victory gardens, like very grassroots things that make us feel involved. And I'm wondering if that's something that you think will be engaged, like a, a positive groundswell, um, or if this was um, kind of a calculation that, that that level couldn't be sustained until the next election, but it will be impl employed. Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, and, and we always, you know, is that never to wait for instructions, meaning, you know, I'm sure you guys do, I mean, our local supporters all around the country come up with great ideas. Some around politics, some not around politics. A lot of them have banded together to do a lot of great nonprofit work and, you know, to set up volunteer shifts at hospitals and schools. And, you know, they have different ideas about how they're going to get people registered. And, you know, listen, I had 6,000 staff in 14 states. You know, we have 200 staff in 50 states now. We are completely dependent on volunteers. And so we've, and the website, but basically we, you know, go, let a thousand flowers bloom. When I say you have an idea, go do it. Uh, and you got to just trust people. To, to do what they think's right. I do think that the level of engagement was never gonna was never gonna be what it was in the campaign for, you know, probably pretty obvious reasons. But I've been struck, as I said, you know, we had five million people so far volunteer on some of these issues. Um, but I'm not worried about the people who were involved in the campaign voting. It's the people sort of two rungs out from that. And that's the real challenge. Um, but I do think that I am, by the way, there are a lot of people who are involved in the campaign who never would have thought of running for office, who've run for office. Some have won, who are, you know, starting nonprofits, who are doing a lot of nonpolitical things. And I think that's important. But my thing would be if you've got a good idea, run with it. And if it works, then try and get it replicated. But you've got to have yeah. it connected to the, you know, the no, party. Not necessarily. For not. them to, to be carried. Yeah, but not, I mean, you know, I think that obviously in the next campaign, yeah, we'll have some kind of moments where we ask everybody around the country to do the same thing. But the real magic, in my view, is when people at a, in a local community decide to, you know, do their own thing. And people had so many great, interesting events during our campaign in their local communities that none of, you know, didn't come from us. You know, we, we would have come up with much worse ideas than they did. <laughs> so, anyway. Well, listen, you guys, this has been really heartening. I feel, uh, I feel good about our prospects in 40 days, and I feel great about our prospects uh, in another two years and one month. So uh, all I... All I would say at the end is just... Um, uh, I generally would say, now, some of you are Republicans, and there doesn't seem to be too many here today, but we all need to be involved. We all got to make sure we vote at the very least, but we got to get other people to vote and to pay attention because the stakes are too large. Uh, this is the most amazing country in the history of the world. Uh, for the first time in a long time, we're actually in a cooperative relationship with the rest of the world, so I don't mean this adversarial. But we got big, big opportunities but problems. And every great country and empire has been at a moment where they either meet the moment 
and continue to strengthen and grow, or they don't. And we're there now. And um, the only way it's going to happen is with your continued assistance. So I just want to tell you how much the president uh, and all of us appreciate all the great work and caring that you do out there. And uh, it's going to be a big part of making this a better country. So thank you. Thank you.